Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled, The Eternal Sonship of Christ. Well, as you can imagine, our broadcast today is going to be devoted to a very crucial doctrine to Christians, the eternal sonship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we begin, we acknowledge that this is a subject about which many books have been written, and we have but a 29-minute window to explore this doctrine with you today. So suffice it to say, much, much more could be said than what we'll have time to get across to you on the broadcast today. But this is a very important subject. As you'll see today, it is a crucial subject to Christianity, to the church. It ought to be an important subject to us. But unfortunately, it's a subject that many are deficient in as it regards to their understanding of it today. If you ask Christians to articulate what it means that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, they probably don't know. Now, they can tell you about their favorite sports team. They can tell you about the latest television shows that are popular, the latest blockbuster movies that everyone's going to see. And they'll be able to argue with you for hours about politics. But if you ask them what's the difference in, let's say, homoousius or homoousius, if you ask them what Christ's eternal sonship means, if you ask them about how we know that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is deity, I'm afraid in our present day and age, you're not going to receive a whole lot of detailed answers to that if you ask your average church member. What's very unfortunate is I have this nagging thought in the back of my mind that if we were to ask preachers, ordained ministers and pastors of churches in today's time, they wouldn't know the answer to that question either. But this would be the topic that more Christians would rush to defend and affirm if they understood how important that it is. What our intention is today is to open with the history of this debate, because church, as it is in 2023, doesn't exist in a vacuum. We didn't just appear. Christianity wasn't invented with you. It wasn't invented with me. It wasn't invented with our grandparents. But Christianity exists in a historical context. This is something that has happened in history, and because of that, there's a history of debate of this subject. There are arguments and doctrines involving this subject. And so we'll begin with the history of this debate before looking to the Scriptures, and then some tried-and-true language that we find in older writings before ending with a simple word on why we want to get this right. So the first thing we want to do today is to consider the history behind the debate of the eternal sonship of Christ. The identity of Jesus is the most important issue in human history. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked his disciples a question who do others say that I am? And you know the answer to that. Some people said he was John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Some people said that he was Jeremiah or one of the prophets, Elijah, perhaps. But Jesus responds and asks his disciples in Matthew 16 and verse 15, But whom say ye that I am? 
Now, if the identity of Jesus is the most important issue in human history, then the question, who do you say that I am, who is Jesus, is the most important question in human history. If his identity is the most important issue, then the question of who do you believe Jesus is, is the most important question. Peter's answer here is, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Son of the living God. Our primary focus today will be about Jesus as the Son of God. Now, after his incarnation, he's the Son of Man, and that means that he's a human being. The title Son of Man communicates his humanity, but the title Son of God communicates his deity and his divinity. Jesus, as the Son of God, is one with the Father. And so that is a title of his deity and his divinity. Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responds to him, interestingly enough, and says something many Christians don't realize either. He says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. If you believe in Jesus, if you know that Jesus is the Son of God, and you believe in him as Christ and as God incarnate, you believe because God the Father has revealed it to you. God the Father has revealed it to you when he quickened you when you were dead in trespasses and in sins. You have a yearning in your heart for Christ from the moment that you're born again. You hunger and thirst after righteousness. God has revealed his Son to you. And that's a beautiful subject, but a subject for another day. This question, who do you say that I am? Who is Christ? was a question that would be at the core of many early church disputes and all-out wars within Christianity. First, you have the Gnostics, and these people are referred to by the Apostle John in 1 John as Antichrist. They rejected that Jesus had come in the flesh. They believed that Jesus didn't have a physical body, which is why John emphasizes the physical nature of the body of the Lord. We looked at him, our hands handled him of the word of life, when his side was pierced, outflowed blood and water. John is emphasizing Jesus in his humanity in those statements. The Antichrist Gnostics denied, they rejected that the Lord had a flesh and blood body, but they also rejected his divinity. Interestingly enough, that actually made them reject both of the natures of Christ. He was verily God, he was verily man. The council of Chalcedon spoke about the hypostatic union, that Christ is both God and man. We refer to that as the hypostatic union. He's not 50-50 God and man, but he is 100% God and 100% man. The Gnostics rejected both his humanity and his deity. Then you have the Arians, who denied that Jesus was eternally God, and as such they also rejected the Trinity. The Arians believed that Jesus was like the Father, but they denied that he was of the same substance as the Father. They denied, again, his deity. They denied his divinity. And they even denied his impeccability. Now, that's a subject that I'll fight you on, too, the impeccability of Christ, that Jesus was not able to be corrupted because he is divine. Well, the Arians, rejecting his divinity, taught that Jesus could have chosen to do that which is evil, and that's an outright heresy. That's not something that we can tolerate in the church. Jesus was impeccable. 
Now, as you know, through history, the Orthodox won out and the Trinity, as well as the eternal sonship and deity of Christ, have been the majority view throughout church history and are required not only for fellowship within the church, but to be a church to start with. This battle largely played itself out at many councils, but it was reiterated at the councils of Constantinople and Chalcedon and is articulated in the Athanasian Creed, more perhaps from those resources later. But let's turn to the Bible. Regardless of what theologians, councils, and creeds say, the Bible is the only rule of faith and practice— The Bible truly furnishes us. Now, to be very clear, you and I many times can't understand the Bible the way we could without a knowledge of history. What did Simon Magus do after he was excommunicated in Acts? What's Satan's seat in Pergamos in the book of Revelation chapter 2? When was Jerusalem destroyed? Who was Caesar Augustus? What was the abomination of desolation? There's so many things in the Bible, countless things in the Bible that we can't understand without history. Because this isn't just some book that was beamed down to us. It was written in a historical context. And to understand it, we have to know language. We have to know culture. We have to know history. But the Bible is our only rule of faith and practice, and it is sufficient. Now, while the Bible is our only rule of faith and practice, this is an area that those ancient Christian councils got absolutely right. And I will go as far as to say that it's not really possible to improve upon the language that they used in places like the Council of Nicaea or Chalcedon, etc. Now, as far as Jesus' divinity is concerned, we have passages like John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That is teaching the deity and the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. We did a radio broadcast about that not a month and a half ago. But we also have awesome statements regarding the divinity of Christ from other places. In the book of Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8, Unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is actually a citation of the Psalms. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. What does the Father say to the Son? Thy throne, O God, is forever. This is teaching very explicitly Jesus' divinity, Jesus' deity. The very title, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a divine title. You see, when the Jews read the Old Testament and they came across the Tetragrammaton, the four consonant name of God in the Old Testament, rather than pronounce that word, they would simply supplement the word for Lord. We find this all through the New Testament as the New Testament writers or speakers in the New Testament, quote a passage from the Old Testament that contained that tetragrammaton. That tetragrammaton, by the way, translates into a KJV as Jehovah, and that's the oldest known pronunciation, albeit with a Y instead of a J, because in Hebrew you don't have a J sound. It comes into our English Bibles as Jehovah. But as Jews quoted that even in Jesus' day, even among the apostles, Rather than articulating that name, they would simply use the word for Lord. When we read the Lord Jesus Christ, that literally attributes divinity to him. The Lord Jesus Christ means that he is the Lord incarnate as the person of Jesus Christ. The Lord, Jehovah, is here in the person of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. As he said in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. Christ is God incarnate. The Lord Jesus Christ communicates his 
deity. It communicates his divinity. But Christ's sonship is one of the primary scriptural references from which we know and articulate his deity. We know his deity because he is the Son of God. That expression, the Son of God, does not have reference to his incarnation. It has reference to his eternal deity. When Jesus said in John chapter 5 that he's the Son of God, what did the Jews do? They took up stones to stone him for blasphemy in their words because he claimed divinity by saying he was God's Son. The same thing happens in John chapter 10. They take up stones to stone him when he says, I and my Father are one. Why do they do that? Because to them, to say that he is the Son of God and that God is his Father was to claim deity. It was to claim divinity. They understood the theological implications of that title. Now, had anyone else said that, it would have been blasphemy. But when Jesus said it, it was true because he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to Romans chapter 1. So his sonship as a doctrine that's written about throughout the New Testament and referenced even in the Old Testament, his sonship communicates his deity and his divinity. So if he's not the eternal Son of God, then he's not eternally God, and you have the position of the Arians. This is why this is such an important concept to get right biblically. And again, this phrase, Son of God, occurs over and over and over in Scripture. Now, as articulated at the Council of Nicaea, Christ is of the same substance as the Father. His Sonship conveys that he's of the same substance as his Father. The word that they use transliterates into English as homoousius, same substance. Homo meaning same, same substance. Or you'd pronounce it in modern Greek as homoousios. The heretics added what we call in English an iota. It would really be a iota in the Greek language. A simple letter, I, making the word homoousius, transliterating into English, which means of similar substance. So the Orthodox say that Jesus is of the same substance as the Father. The heretics add this one letter, making this word similar substance rather than same substance. And this is actually where we get the figure of speech or the idiom. There's not one iota of difference between one thing and another thing. There's not one iota of difference between the Son and the Father in their nature. Now, the Father and the Son are two different persons of the Godhead. The Godhead is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. But as far as nature and substance and essence, they are verily God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. There's not one iota of difference between the natures of the Father and the Son. Now, as we've already said, one constant title of Jesus in the Bible is the Son of God. We saw that in Matthew. Let's do a little bit of reasoning. Jesus says, I am the Son of God. Now, I, Ben Winslet, along with every other person that's ever been born, is the Son of someone. As a Son, I am of the same substance as my Father, that is to say, flesh. I am of the same essence and nature as my Father, which in Adam is sin. And so because I'm born of my Father, I have the same nature that he has. I am a sinner. This is why another birth is necessary for me to be saved and to be with God in glory. I have to have a birth from above to be born again, to be born of God, to be regenerated or quickened. 
I am of the same essence and substance and nature, etc., as my father, because I'm his son. Everything we get physically, we get from our parents. We understand that genetically through our DNA in today's scientific world. What is God communicating to us? What does Christ communicate to us by this language that he's the Son of God that we find both in the Old and New Testaments? I say in the Old Testament. Remember Psalm 2, kiss the Son, lest he be angry. Remember the likeness of the fourth person in the fiery furnace that looked as the Son of God. Remember all the references in the New Testament to Christ being God's Son. What is God communicating to us by this language that we find both in the Old and the New Testament regarding Christ being the Son of God? Christ is the Son of God, and as such, he is of the same substance as his Father. Again, homoousius, same substance. From all the way back at the Council of Nicaea, this has been hammered out, and that is the correct biblical position based upon what the Word of God says. Christ being the Son of the Father, is of the same substance as his Father. And what is that? What nature is that? What essence is that? Well, deity and divinity. Just as much as I'm a son of my Father, who's a son of Adam, and we are sinners, Jesus is God's Son, and being God's Son, he's of the same nature as his Father, and his Father is God. His Father is God the Father, deity, divinity, He's of the same essence and nature as his father. So what are the implications of that? This is taking you through the reasoning of theologians in church history. What are the implications of Jesus being the son of his father of the same essence and substance and nature as his father in glory? Jesus is co-eternal with the father. If he's of the same substance as the father, because he's the son of the father— He's co-eternal with his Father because his Father is from everlasting to everlasting God. Psalm 90 and verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. So being the Son of God means that he's co-eternal with the Father. From everlasting to everlasting, Jesus has been deity and divinity. Also, being of the same substance, the same nature as the Father, Jesus is co-equal with the Father because there's none greater than God. Hebrews 6.13 makes that point. Because God could swear by none greater because there is none greater. He swear by himself as he swore to Abraham, saying, I will bless thee and in multiplying, I will multiply thee. God could swear by none greater because there is none greater. If Jesus is of the same substance as the Father, then there is none greater than Jesus, making Jesus co-equal with the Father. Now, those words co-eternal and co-equal are so very important because there are people in today's time that are orthodox on many points that teach that Jesus is eternally subordinate to the Father. But remember, same substance means co-equal. He's co-eternal, he's co-equal, because unlike human beings, which do have some sort of hierarchy, especially in a patriarchal system, we're talking about the nature of God here. So Jesus being the Son of God is co-eternal and co-equal, because God is from everlasting to everlasting, and there is none greater than God. So as long as eternity has existed, which is by definition for eternity— The Father and the Son have existed in this relationship that 
we know that they have between the Father and the Son. The Son is of the same essence as the Father. Now, by the way, as we dig a little deeper into this, this is why in Jesus' ministry he would make the statement that to see him was to see the Father, and to know him was to know the Father, and no man knows him except the Father draws them, and no man knows the Father except through Christ. This is why to know one is to know the other. If you have seen Christ, Jesus says to his disciples, then you have seen the Father, if you have seen him. Why? Because they're of the same substance, because they're of the same essence. That substance, that essence being divinity and deity. So if you take away the eternal sonship of Christ, you attack this crucial doctrine of the deity of Christ, the divinity of Christ, and quite literally, you side with the Arians. And so to conclude this little line of thought that we've been engaging in, Jesus is properly described as being the eternal Son of God, eternally begotten by the Father, and we call this doctrine eternal generation, which simply means that Jesus is eternally the Son of God, and that they have had this relationship of Father and Son and Holy Ghost within the three-in-one Godhead, the Trinity, the Triunity, for all of eternity. So, with that thought in mind, the Son of God has always been the Son of God. Think about how silly it would be contrary-wise. You'd have a mutable God rather than an immutable God. God is immutable. The word immutable means unchanging. The words mutate or mutant refer to changes, and generally changes for the worse. God is immutable, meaning that he does not change, and that's a Bible doctrine. That's a biblical fact. You'd have a change in the unchanging three-in-one God if Jesus were not eternally God's Son, but became God's Son at incarnation or at some other point. God the Father would not have been God the Father for eternity if those who deny eternal sonship were correct, and God the Son would not have been God the Son for eternity past. How bizarre of a view is that those who deny the eternal sonship of Christ would have God the Father becoming God the Father at the conception of Christ. Does that make the hair on the back of your neck stand up? Do you get a sick feeling in your stomach? I hope so. So denial of this even challenges the immutability of God. But we know that God changes not, for he said so in Malachi chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 13. God changes not. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, if you'll notice, rather than Jesus becoming God's Son at incarnation, the Bible says that God sent His Son, not that God sent something or some part of Himself that became His Son, but that God literally sent His Son, His Son, which again is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. In Galatians chapter 4, we read, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. What did God do? He sent forth his son. In the book of 1 John, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, we find two great statements concerning God sending his son into the world. 1 John 4, 9, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It doesn't say that God sent the Word that became the Son. It says that God sent the Son. There are three explicit references I just gave you to the Father sending the Son, 
not the Father sending the Word that became the Son. He was His Son when He was sent to be our propitiation. His only begotten was sent into the world. Last statement along these lines in the book of John, chapter 3 and verse 16, probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible to Christianity at large. God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His only begotten Son. God sent His Son into the world to die for us. Now, as we have just a few minutes remaining on the broadcast with you today, I'd like to read for you some statements that we find in various creeds through Christian history that articulate this doctrine well. The Nicene Creed of 325, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Nicaea espouses the eternal sonship of Christ, his deity, his eternality, that he is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. Constantinople in 381, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. He's the only begotten, eternally begotten Son of God, in the words of the Council at Constantinople in 381. Chalcedon emphasizes the hypostatic union in 451. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to manhood. Now, the Athanasian Creed is rather long, and for the sake of time, we don't have opportunity to read it all for you here today, but it has to do with the Trinity, and this dates to the 5th century, it's believed, the 5th century A.D., It begins that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, not blending their persons or dividing their essence. And then it speaks about how the fact that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are three persons, but there are not three gods, nor is God divisible into three, but the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and yet there is only one God. But regarding the Sonship of Christ, what quality the Father has, the Son has, the Holy Spirit has, uncreated immeasurable, eternal, and yet there are not three eternal beings, but one eternal being, almighty God, Lord. The Athanasian Creed very much confirms this historic and biblical doctrine that Jesus Christ is the only begotten of the Father, eternal, co-eternal, and co-equal with the Father in glory. And you find some of the most detailed and safe but also deep statements regarding the Trinity in the Athanasian Creed. Now, as we bring our broadcast today to a close, why do we want to get this right? Why is this so important? Simply put, to dismiss the eternal sonship of Christ is to reject the God of Christianity. It is to reject the Christ of Christianity. It is to reject the very arguments used to defend the divinity of Jesus Christ and to dismantle even the very teaching of the Trinity itself. It aligns one with the most nefarious of heretics throughout Christian history and alienates oneself from the most godly and pious lovers of Christ since his incarnation 2,000 years ago. And frankly, it's simply unbiblical 
and heretical to deny the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write and let me know that you've received the broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at marchtozion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741, or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.